Welcome everyone to our latest NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, our NCAA Chief Medical Officer. Prim Serpapat, she is a former Duke women's tennis player, former ESPN commentator, the host of the New Chapter podcast, and currently a PhD student at Fordham University. And Dr. Robin Schofield, Director of Culture, Wellbeing, and Clinical and Sport Psychological Services at the University of Southern California. Uh, Robin, I want to start with you. Um, it is Mental Health Awareness Month in May, but obviously this is a topic that should be going on 12 months of the year. In the student-athlete population, uh, where are we in terms of the health of the mental health of our student-athletes? I mean, I think that we've had um, a lot of help from NCAA passing the guidelines in 2016 in raising awareness um, and in, in, in sort of um, integrating into a culture, you know, that was antithet antithetical really to um, mental health help seeking, right? It's that where there's a will, there's a way. And recovery from things like depression and anxiety doesn't necessarily happen just through will. So I think that the NCAA has done a great job at sort of breaking down those barriers amongst uh, sport administration. And, um, but we, you know, we are at a point of needing to kind of understand how to further integrate this um, by looking at the environments within which our student athletes exist and, and addressing them more environmentally. A lot of what we see today um, comes to our doorstep and is about how uh, people's, our student athletes sense of self um, is created those first 18 years. And we can't undo all of that. And we do need to be working at the youth sport level to make the kinds of changes in health and well-being that we need to see so our college student athletes can thrive. But I think we're definitely seeing member institutions increase their staff and, and um, engage in education and uh, creating a space for the voice of the student athlete to talk about their struggles and stresses. So, um, you know, I think we're moving in a, a better space overall. Prim, I think you're great to give a perspective here because uh, you are a former student athlete at Duke, a high pressure academic institution where you are expected to perform well academically as well as on the field of play or court of play. Since you were in school to now, um, how would you gauge uh, basically the mental health uh, resources when you were a student athlete to what you are seeing now as a doctoral student in college athletes and even some professionals? Wow. Well, uh, not to date myself, but yes, in, in 20 years, we've definitely seen a lot of changes. I wouldn't say that there were no resources but there was no, definitely no conversation about mental health in the intersection of sport. Um, you know, even cancer, you know, when you and I were at ESPN and we just, we launched our respective pod, podcasts back in 2015. Um, and that was like, for me, it was called Inside Out. It was one of the first sports psychology podcasts at ESPN. But even then the landscape was just too green. It was almost ahead of its time. But, you know, talking about my college experience, you know, we did have a sports psychologist on staff, but much of the focus was centered around performance and maximizing that performance level on the court or field. And there wasn't really a lot of conversation about 
who is this human being, the development of the person behind the athlete facade. And I think now we're having a much more well-rounded, comprehensive conversation. I think a lot of that has to do with social media because athletes are now having much more power over their narrative and talking about who they are as people and interests outside of sport. And so I think that's kind of, um, you know, that's kind of playing into the conversation, but there's no question that we still have a long ways to go, but we've come a long way from 20 years ago. Brian, um, there was a survey uh, that went out on student athlete well-being. What did the NCAA learn from that? Well, there are a few things, Andy. One is that during COVID, uh, depression and anxiety really increased amongst all of our student athletes. And, and I think we can look at society as a whole. COVID was really, really difficult. It just kind of took away uh, so many aspects of human connectedness, which, which is vital to who we are. Other things is that even though the mental health resources are available at member schools, it was a little surprising to see the number of student athletes who were not aware of the mental health resources at their individual schools. So that tells us that the member schools can do a better job of letting athletes know, look, this is what we have for routine mental health care. This is what we have for emergency mental health care. This is what we're doing to foster an environment that improves overall mental well-being. And so, so I think that to me was perhaps the most important take-home point that at each school, we can do a better job of letting athletes know what really is available. And we should normalize mental health care seeking. Just like, I think it would be very surprising if an athlete said, I don't know how to get help for a sprained ankle. And mental health care seeking should be at that same level. So that's a great point. And Robin, I'm curious. Uh, I mean, I've been doing this 30 years, date myself here, and I know when athletes get to campus, they'll meet with a nutritionist, the strength coach. And by the way, in football, there might be 10, you know, strength-related coaches. Uh, at what point are we going to get to where, especially initially or even during the season, not maybe mandatory, but it is encouraged for a check-in or something that is dealt with the mind? Because obviously, if you don't have a strong mind or a healthy mind, it doesn't matter how strong your body is. I mean, so where, where are we going to get to on college campuses where that is emphasized as much as meeting with the physical side of you as a student athlete? Great question, um, Caster. Um, Cause I think it speaks to um, some of the, the larger stigma issues. So here within three days of their arrival, um, they are in an hour and a half session with my whole team um, and uh, addressing sort of just the whole person. Um, and that that's our approach. That's the administration's approach. Um, and that everything starts with the whole healthy person. And, um, and so, so we hit it right out of the starting block. And, and in addition, I have staff assigned to each team and a lot of those staff will meet with each of the freshmen for a quick check-in um, when they get here. And then we're integrated in the team. And so the, the teamwork also you know, um, serves to create the relationship so people are comfortable um, seeking help, but, but it also helps to create that uh, healthy environment. So out of season, you're doing culture development and it's without question that the healthier the environment of uh, uh, the team, the less mental health referrals you get. Um, and and at, you know, in season, it's more performance oriented. And, um, and so 
you know, we definitely, it speaks to how mental health really needs administrative support. Um, I think you can, you need to have head coach support, but they need to understand it in layman's terms and how it's going to support their objectives. And so, you know, your, your psychologist should be able to have that conversation so that they get on board, but your administration has to be overseeing um, the, the work um, in order for it to, for, to have the opportunity, for instance, to do orientation with your, with your freshmen when you start. Because, you know, one of the biggest barriers today, I mean, one of the strengths of the last two cohorts are millennials and Gen Zers have been that they are resourceful. They use their resources well. And so, you know, most of them have come to see having a sports psychologist is a luxury that our professional athletes, we have our NFL guys come back all the time and say, hey, there was a line outside the door of the sports psychologist at, at you know, at our uh, facilities. And so it, it flips it up. But where our biggest barriers now are actually at the staff level. And so they're the ones who talk about going to therapy. One of my staff says is like, you're you know, trying to convince them to eat broccoli. Like, I know you don't want to go and blah, blah, blah. And, and when you do that, and that's their stigma, it's not our student athlete stigma. So I think that too, um, if you have educated administration can really help um, move the needle. Brian, I mean, this is USC she's talking about it. And, and obviously in division one, there's a wide swath of, of uh, funding in athletic departments and certainly the D2, D3 level. So uh, what have you heard from maybe some of those programs that do have staffing issues of even having, whether that's a full-time person, part-time person. Uh, some of these schools are in communities that are really small, remote areas that may not have the appropriate mental health professionals. Uh, what happens then? Well, it's a great question, Andy. I think we can really even take a step back and look at our society. We just don't have enough licensed mental health providers to care for you know, the citizens and, and all, every people, everyone who lives in the United States of America, you go to a campus level, you speak to presidents, very often their number one concern is how do they, how do they really address the mental health care of all of their students? So um, it, it's a problem and I wouldn't limit it to student athletes, but what we have done, and, and this is very clear in our best practices document that, that all of the schools really should be following, is it's not that you have to have someone on staff. You have to identify who in the school or who in the community can address mental health concerns. And so within the athletics department, you do that for your student athletes. And you know you, you can't have a whole staff devoted to student athletes if you aren't addressing the students on the campus as well. So for many of these campuses, it's a shared resource. And as long as you do the front end work and identify where the routine mental health referrals are going to happen and where the emergency mental health care, how that's going to be addressed, that usually is, is, is sufficient. But, but let's not kid ourselves. We really need to address this at a societal level and increase the number of individuals who can take care of, of everyone in our society. Prim, uh, you know, the stigma, um, you know, it's been mentioned already in our conversation about that, you know, if you have a sprained ankle, you know where to go. But also, those of us, the two of us that have, uh, have been or are in the media, you know, we mentioned that, oh, player X is out because of a sprained ankle. 
Um, it's not accepted to say player X is not going to play today or is not at practice today because they needed a mental health day or two. Um, how far away do you think we are from that being accepted, both as the player, the student athlete, the coach, the you know school slash team, to to be able to say that? I think we're actually reaching a point where athletes feel pretty comfortable doing that, especially like you know some of the athletes within the Gen Z and millennial population. But I don't know if we reached a really good balance and understanding from the societal level and also across all age spectrums. I do think there's a generational gap. Um, sometimes that's pretty apparent, whereas like the younger population seems to have a better handle and maybe not being, as, as Robin kind of mentioned, like not being afraid to, to seek help and also really dive into some of their resources. But, you know, just kind of like melding what, what Robin and also Brian said, I do think that the stigma and encouraging everybody to get help has to kind of have this top-down approach. Um, you know, Robin really mentioned about the, it's, it's all up to the administration. I've talked to dozens and dozens of athletes on my show. And the one thing that consistent, consistently comes up is that even when they want to get help, and even when they did get help, they didn't get the support that they needed. Whether, whether it was their coach saying, hey, you know what? I need you to skip class and I need you to be here for practice. That sends the message that I don't, I'm not really invested in you, not only as a student or a person, but, I, but you need to put sport first. And when we have that type of culture, um, I, I think it makes it really difficult for athletes to destigmatize and also invest in their mental health when they're not getting the support that they need, whether it's from administrators or from, their, from even their head coaches. And so I think, you know, the, the key to all of this is really understanding culture because every university has its own culture and every team within the university has its own culture. And that's, that's really critical. And, and by diving into that aspect, then we can really begin to treat some of the athletes' needs because their needs are different from UCLA versus Duke versus Tulane versus Northwestern or whoever, or D3 level, right? And, and Robin, you know, it's not just a student athlete issue, obviously, as Brian said, it's societal, but um, where are we in terms of the staff, especially the coaching staff, if they're not feeling it on a particular day and something's happened in their personal life and they need to take a step away so they don't lash out at their players because something's happening in their own lives and feeling that support, that empowerment to take a day off uh, for these reasons or seek help. Uh, where are we at the staff level of that support? I mean, I think administratively, I mean, you know, I can't speak to everywhere. I think our administrators here are very supportive of our coaches um, needing to take a, a day or take care of themselves. I mean, you know, if you know the coaching lifestyle, it's 365 days a year. Um, and so our coaches work incredibly hard. So I mean, the number one thing I do, especially at this time of year, I'm starting to talk to them. When's the vacation plan? Where are you going? How many days? Three days isn't enough. Um, and um, so I, I think there is support, but they hold themselves to a very high standard. I mean, we had a semester a few years ago where we had five head coaches who either had parents dying or someone close in their family dying or, or ill. 
Um, and it was coming right up to kind of postseason um, spring. And they didn't want to tell the student athletes what was happening. And, you know, my suggestion was this is you as a human being. And they can relate to this as a human being. And th there was worried about disruption of play, but I'm like, when they see you as a human being, there is nothing that creates cohesion and purpose than understanding, you know, what that this was meaningful to you and purposeful and how it's translated to who you are today as a coach. So I think the more that we can live and acknowledge ourselves as human beings, whether we're coaches or student athletes first, um, people will even say that, you know, we must have it all figured out. We're psychologists, we're human beings first. We are going to suffer. We will hopefully be stronger from, from that with the adequate support. And I think that's the key thing is it's not taking away the challenge, but it's meeting the support with the challenge. Um, and so, um, I think it's there, but I think coaches hold themselves to an unrealistic high standard at times. Uh, I want to dive back into COVID uh, and have all three of you comment on this because for obviously all of us, it was incredibly stressful, anxiety-ridden, uh, you know, lonely, um, but especially for the student athletes who are on these college campuses, in many cases by themselves, and, uh, you know, we're basically practicing and playing. And then they had to go back, take their meal to their room. If they got COVID, you know, they were obviously quarantined. And if they got contact traced, sometimes they would have upwards of 21, 28 days spread throughout the course of the season isolated. Uh, and it was debilitating for many. We've on this show, we've talked to many student athletes and coaches about it. Uh, food being dropped off outside, waving through the window. Uh, Brian, how much did COVID have a serious effect? on the mental health of the student athletes? Well, it, it was uh, substantial, Andy. Some of our surveys uh, show that uh, anxiety and depression increased between 200 and 300% having anxiety and depression symptoms amongst the student athletes. And it's really not so surprising. Student athletes are so goal-oriented and they have this structure, this somewhat rigid structure, but, but really discipline gives us our freedom as well, right? And so that structure was taken away. There was the uncertainty. And, and in some ways, what was striking is the number of student athletes who, in the surveys, who said that they, they lost a sense of hope. And, and when you lose hope and, and you don't really have your goals in front of you, uh, then you can start to unravel. So it was very difficult. Again, as a society, we're, we're seeing that COVID had a dramatic impact on, on mental health and, and general health and well-being of, of our society at large. But uh, there's no question it also uh, impacted negatively our student athletes. I mean, I think, you know, I think that makes sense, not just only within the student athlete population, but just across society. Um, and, and not just the college age student, but I, I think we were seeing depression and anxiety and just various issues, especially in, you know, the medical profession with doctors and nurses. I mean, it was just hitting everybody across the board because we had to create a new norm. But, uh, you know, when we're going, when we're talking about the student athlete population, when, when your purpose, and for many of them, it is sport, and when your outlet and when your vehicle and your social support and your identity is entirely taken away, which is through sport, it makes a lot of sense about why the, this house 
would completely collapse because sport is oftentimes the foundation that holds so many of these athletes up. But I think the silver lining, if we were to look at it from an optimistic view, the silver lining of the pandemic is that it really showed a lot of cracks in the system, in sport and in many other instances. Um, and not to, I know this is very tangential and irrelevant, but you know, the baby formula situation and, or you know, racial and social justice issues. I mean, these are all kind of intersecting and colliding. And so I think the pandemic did shed light on some of the gaps um, within you know, some of the issues that we have within sport. Um, I think Prim's absolutely right. I mean, I think um, staff are still, um, you know, adults are still kind of recovering and figuring it out. And work-life balance was challenging before, and and there's definitely been a shift. Um, I do think that that the developmentally, this population um, really saw the worst of it, though. I have a, actually a teenager, a couple college uh, students as well. Um, of my own. And, um, you know, uh, just in general for students, you know, that uh, sense of belonging is a primary developmental objective. And that's without your home community and without your family is learning to, to be social and, um, and, and manage and succeed there and, and, and develop a sense of belonging without that home base and home community. And then cultivating that independence, which I think you referred to earlier, and, and that was completely severed, you know, um, and, and that's just a developmental press. And I think Prim was spot on in saying, you know, that, that the identity piece is the piece that really made it more challenging for our student athletes, you know, and, and Brian was referencing it too. So most student athletes, one of their top two or three identities, regardless of other socio-demographic characteristics, is as of um, a, an elite athlete. And so when you, and it, you know, it, it creates daily goals and purpose and long-term goals and purpose. And, and they spend hours doing that. And we took the, that away. Um, the pandemic took that away. And I think that really, it, it, I always talk about, you know, the issues and stresses for student athletes are layered. They're not just one thing. Student athletes are actually, pretty good overall at managing stress. But when you layer on the, the number of things they have to contend with, that's why at times, you know, it gets pretty overwhelming. But we, we saw a bimodal distribution of people who were more vulnerable during the pandemic. And those were people who had either pre-existing anxiety and depression or family struggles or trauma. And then we saw actually what the other group was sort of that quintessential um, kind of coach favorite student athlete who's a little bit tightly wound, a little righteous, um, does absolutely everything perfectly that everybody in academic and athletics wants them to do. And when the pandemic hit, it, it was very hard for us to make sense of it. You know, we were going this direction one day, the other direction, it was very hard. And for those people, that flexibility and adaptability that you need for resilience, that was challenging. So those, the, the hospitalizations increased for those two groups, um, the higher levels of care. Um, so I think it did hit our student athlete population uniquely. Um, we could talk for hours on this. Um, I just have two last topics I wanna just dive into real quick here. Prim, I wanna start with you. Um, we've talked about the coaches and the student athletes by themselves or helping each other. 
What about the peer-to-peer? Um, and I don't want to place this responsibility on a fellow teammate, but what are some signs? And if all three of you can chime in here, I'll start with you, Prim, of where a teammate should be looking out for uh, and should feel empowered to, you know, say that something isn't right. And, you know, this person should seek help or talk to the coach or talk to the individual themselves because that peer-to-peer locker room relationship, those are probably, I would assume, those first signs of where, you know, something may seem not right. That is such a good question, um, Katz. And I think that that is really important. I, you know, I think the most important thing is just to pay attention to anything unusual. If you start seeing any sort of abnormal or, or outlier type um, behaviors, that, that might be a, a red flag, maybe um, some sort of dysfunction or a dip in their performance on the quarter field, maybe in school. You might, maybe you notice um, some temperament changes if they might feel, be uh, they might be, seemingly um, kind of down or sad or they're isolating themselves, maybe some some outbursts. Um, I think all of those uh, characteristics are are potentially signs that something somebody might be going through it. And you know I think it, it is really important to to shed light on that peer-to-peer interaction, but I also place I also want to make sure we loop in the responsibility of the, of the coach. And I, I don't want to steer the conversation in a different direction because it, it is a lot of responsibility for to place on these athletes between eight to 18 and 22 years old. You know, they're juggling so much. And as Robin pointed out, they're going through a critical developmental period. So I think, you know, kind of noticing some signs between and amongst each other, but also with the coach, making sure that the head coach is paying attention to some of these signs as well. And so, you know, hopefully when those, those things do happen, then an athlete would feel comfortable of maybe approaching that athlete or even having that conversation with, with one of the coaches. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, you know, there's something we call the bystander effect where you see something and it doesn't make sense to you. Maybe you think sense someone's in danger, but you don't feel empowered to do anything about it. And so uh, increasingly schools are really working with coaches, importantly, as Prem states, and student athletes to really do what's called bystander intervention, to know that you don't have to be an expert in this area. You don't even, you don't have to treat, but we should know how to manage all of these situations. A number of schools have begun uh, providing mental health first aid, kind of similar to CPR. So it's just looking for what are, what are the key signs? What are the symptoms? and feeling empowered to, to intervene and, and to do a handoff, if you will. So yeah, that environment of breaking down this, uh, and, uh, you know, the bystander inhibition effect uh, is, is really important. I think uh, Prim and Brian have it both spot on. Um, I think, you know, your um, coach education is absolutely essential. And then I think just, you know, um, engaging ourselves as human beings, you know, um, and, and when we see uh, what Prim was referring to is a change in functioning, right? So um, that's really the litmus test to, to determine whether someone is moving into a clinically diagnosable space or becoming at risk. So, um, you know, you just, uh, you know, like social isolation, I mean, um, you know, a change in the, the kinds of ways that people present um, is really what you're looking for. And just a normal human 
outreach um, and and touch, you know, checking in, touching base um, can really sort of get the ball rolling. So, and then just making sure, um, like we've spoken to, that people know the resources, that they can hand off that number discreetly if that's what they think the person needs. But certainly coach education is critical. Um, all of our coaches, you know, stand up and endorse the services and you want your head coaches to do that at the beginning of the every, every year, um, because that's really, um, you know, how you also break down stigma and then facilitate referrals that are more critical. Um, Prim, one thing that you've done work on, uh, this relates to the COVID piece of it being taken away is it doesn't just end on uh, senior day uh, for all these athletes, especially those that are not professional athletes. And I know you've talked uh, even to a professional athlete like Greg Oden, former Ohio State player, um, what have you found happens to the student athlete when the career ends as a college athlete and suddenly everything they've been doing their entire lives is over? What happens? I don't have enough time to be able to explain and articulate eloquently what happens to the athlete. And uh, you know, this is a topic that I could go on and on about. I mean, you know, I think it goes back to that old saying, the old adage of every athlete dies twice. The first occurs upon retirement. And it is so much true. Every athlete that I talk to, regardless if it's, it was at the high school level, college level, or professional level, they experience a sense of loss, a sense of loss in identity, structure, support, purpose, meaning, social network, everything. And I think, you know, as I kind of mentioned, I, I look at it as if it is a, this house. And so when so much of this foundation and the pillars that hold them up are based on sport, it can really, really affect a lot of these athletes, not only logistically and practically as they try to transition out of school and find their next purpose and career, but men mentally and emotionally. And I think the biggest thing for, if I could create some sort of, you know, systematic or, or systemic outreach program, it would be to engage with athletes at every single point of their college career, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, redshirt, whatever it is, and have kind of this mental health counseling, career counseling type conversation to prepare them for not just like the logistical and practical, because from a university standpoint, they deal with all that stuff, right? They're preparing them for their major and whatever, and they have like career networking opportunities, but it's also hitting them from an emotional level. Like these are some of the things that you can expect from an emotional level. And here are the ways in which you, are in you can cope and also manage and kind of negotiate this period of your life. Because I can tell you in the 20 to 30 years that I was sitting there as an athlete, no one ever told me how to deal with emotions. In fact, that is the one thing that athletes or coaches will tell you to just shove aside is like, don't experience any emotion. So I think that, that if I could just, you know, whittle it down and, and what I hope for athletes as they're going through this period and, and speaking to universities, I think that's one point that we could really, um, we could really address. Well, and, and if I could just follow up real quick, Prim, you experienced this because yeah. after your broadcasting career, you went back on the tour because you felt like you did not complete your tennis career. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of that was because I, I had no idea I was going to experience that sense of loss. And because I didn't necessarily have the proper 
um, coping skills to deal with my emotions and feelings. I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't know how to say goodbye. I was avoiding the sense of goodbye. I didn't know how to heal. And so essentially it manifested itself into an eating disorder, which began at 18 years old during sport abstinence when I experienced my first significant injury. But then as you know, I left sport, now I had this huge void and, you know, Thankfully, I was, um, you know, I, I reached a point by the time I was 30 years old where I was like, what I'm doing right now isn't working. I have to get help. I have to get help. And so, you know, we, we kind of uncovered that. And interestingly, I, you know, I think it was like six years into therapy that I didn't even realize that a lot of these things that I was holding on to was because I wasn't able to properly say goodbye and I was unhappy with how my career ended. So, you know, that just, you know, my example of my journey is kind of um, shed sheds light on how really, really difficult it can be for athletes to leave sport. Well, you know, and our data tell us that transition out of sport is a risk factor for developing mental health symptoms and, and disorders. And so, you know, Robin has talked so often about our humanity and, and dealing with things at a human level. And so what's really important for the student athletes is how do they identify themselves as a soulful human being or as really simply being an athlete? And, and, and that identity can really determine what happens when you suddenly do transition out of sport. And so it really should be addressed. I, I agree completely with Prim that we need to be addressing this from freshman year on and, and you know how you take care of yourself emotionally, what are your skills and so forth, but really focusing on that transition out of sport, whether it happens naturally because you finished college or we also have to think about when sudden, someone suddenly transitions because of injury or they get cut. That sense of identity is really key and, and at the front end to identify as a human being first. That's, that's what's important. Prim, I hope you keep taking up this mantle. It definitely needs a lot of, of uh, work and support. But I think, I think our member institutions have a responsibility to um, focus on cult cultivating career identity while they're in school. So we focus a lot on developing academic identity as they're coming in and then on creating uh, an environment where they can thrive and hopefully supporting their well-being while they're there. Um, but we need to be cultivating, and, and Prim is absolutely right, every single year, their career identity, because that is one of the things that helps expand their identity. And it is, I, we talk about retirement, whether it's in an ideal situation, like I kind of joke that every incoming student athlete want, you know, thinks they're going to be a student athlete for all four years and graduate having won NCAA championships. And that happens to very few people. Um, and retirement at any point voluntarily is not a, a, an event of shame. It is developmentally appropriate. For, for college student athletes to, to retire when they're ready. Now we do have a lot of situations with injury, um, you know, that force retirement, but it really is the experience of it often, even in ideal situations is like a mini PTSD. You feel disoriented, definitely the loss that Prim referenced, um, confused, there is a void. We let our student athletes know that you don't relinquish though. Your, your identity as an athlete will remain throughout your life. You aren't um, you know, going to give that up. It's, it's developed who you are and you will continue to live that. And IBM and Google and everyone hires you 
who hires you is understands why they're hiring you. And it's a lot of those values and skills and discipline that you've learned as a student athlete. So, but you are giving up the hours that you committed to it. And that's where, and, and, and that created a lot of relationships and you have to figure out how to do that differently. So, you know, there, there really requires patience and uh, compassion and tolerance and empathy for yourself as you're going through this and, and the system around. It takes time to launch yourself, whether you're a student athlete or not. We have to give our student athletes support, cultivate their identity and give them time to, to do that as they retire. Well, wow, I, I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the three of you, uh, Brian Hainline, uh, Robin Schofield and Prim Surfa Pat and all the, your information um, and everything that you have been sharing, especially you Prim. Uh, as always, um, you know, we learn. Uh, I think these are great educational tools for everyone that watches it within the membership at all levels. So I appreciate all of your time. Uh, this is not the only time we will deal with this topic. Obviously, this is 12 months a year. Uh, as always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series, where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching, everyone. Mm -hmm.